Chapter 22 of Women, Children, Love, and Marriage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Women, Children, Love, and Marriage by Catherine Gascoigne Hartley. Section 1 of Marriage and Other Relationships. Is passionate love the surest foundation for marriage? There is no subject, says Bernard Shaw in the preface to Getting Married, on which more dangerous nonsense is talked and thought than marriage. And though I disagree rather violently with Mr. Shaw's views about marriage, he is right here. We do talk dangerous nonsense, which need not matter very much, if we did not think absurdly and so inevitably have to pay the root in the wrong action. This explains, I think, our curious levity and our unhappiness and fierce refusal to face facts. We have infested our ideas with the poison of pleasure and turned away from essential things. Marriage is not a religion to us. It's a sport. I say this quite deliberately. I am sure we know better how to engage a servant, how to buy a house, how to set up in business, how indeed to do every unimportant thing in life than we know how to choose a partner in marriage. We require a character with our cook or our butler. We engage an expert to test the drains of our house. We study and work to prepare ourselves for business. But in marriage, we take no such sensible precautions. We even pride ourselves so we do not take them. We speak of falling in love, and we do fall. The conventions of today are false. They are bound up with concealments or with an equally untruthful openness. It does not, however, follow from this that mere destruction will be enough, that everyone's unguided ignorance will lead to success and freedom. The laissez-faire system is as false in the realm of marriage as it is in industry and economics. While equally false, though this is rarely recognized, is the modern spiritual view of marriage that love can be found only in perfect harmony of character between the wife and the husband, and is independent of duty. It is true that love differs from lusts in its deeper insight into the personality, deeper interest in character, as opposed to the inexpressive smooth outline and untrained physical beauty of the body. But the character and intellect may be studied and loved as self-centeredly as much with a view to the enjoyment of mental excitement as the body itself, of all of which what is the moral? This, in marriage, as in other things, we fasten our chains about our necks. We do not find what we desire because we do not know what we want. The very word love is used in so general and indiscriminate a way to, de to denote sometimes the most transitory impulse and sometimes the most intense feeling that a mass of misunderstanding arises. The emotion which most often passes under the name of love is a maudlin, sickly sentiment or passion founded on hypocrisy, which means nothing at bottom but the desired enjoyment of a passion which is felt but not understood, and which professes to be everything but that which is in reality. With more courage to face truth, we should have a surer ideal. There would be much less sentimentality but much deeper feeling about marriage. Our romance is slightly vulgar. Vulgarity is a sign of weakness of spirit, that spirit which is the life that carves out life, as Nietzsche says. We associate romance with courtship and not with marriage. Thank God our love time has ended, cried a North Country bride on the day that marriage ended her long engagement. Now I do not know whether this delightful story is true, but it does illustrate the attitude of many ordinary couples whose love adventure ends at the very hour it should begin. Every marriage ought to be a succession of courtships. A very slight knowledge of existing marriages is sufficient to convince even the most optimistic believer that true mating is hard. 
I do not believe that most marriages are unhappy, but I do know that only the very few are happy. With many, perhaps, and even with those who are passionate lovers, the attraction of sex always seems to fall short of its end. It draws the two together in a momentary self-forgetfulness, but for the rest, it seems rather to widen their separateness. They are secret to one another in everything, united only in the sexual embrace. Can we, then, ever find perfect love? Is it not like exercise of the body? You can develop it to a certain point, but not beyond without danger and very slowly, with continued patient effort. Do we not need exercise of the soul? I do not know. Often I feel I know nothing. To some men and women, it is all simple enough. A woman is just a woman and a man is a man. The trouble begins when any woman becomes the one desired woman and any man the one desired man. There is gain and development in this selective tendency of love, and yet, if I am right, there is terrible danger lurking in the application of this egotistic spiritual view. We may not safely ask too much or too little from marriage or take too high or too low a view of it. I am not very hopeful of improvement, at least not for a long time, and never unless we learn to be more honest about ourselves and about love. In fear, we have tried to keep the blinds down so that love may be decently obscure. Yet, how can we ever begin to understand and deal with these problems of sex unless we will admit all the instincts and tendencies which ever lead us backwards to the elemental phases of life? The deepest of emotions is sex, and its actions, like all the emotions that are fundamental, may be traced to a thousand bypaths of the ordinary experience of each one of us. It exercises its influence on every period of our development and works subconsciously to control our actions in endless ways that we refuse to acknowledge. Hence the conflicts that manifest themselves so strangely and fiercely in our lives. The emotional self refuses at times to be controlled by the reason self. Restraint cannot do much and indeed often brings deeper evils. For our unconscious selves are stronger than all the pretenses and guards we have set up by our conscious wills, either as individuals to encourage our own conceit and egoism or collectively as a so-called civilized people in the hope of controlling conduct. That is why so much that is said today about sexual conduct is so foolish. The real question is not what people ought to do, but what they actually do and want to do, and therefore like to go on doing. It is these facts that the reformers of marriage almost always fail to face. To me, one thing at least is certain. The romantic view of marriage has failed us, but we cannot change the ideal of today unless we have ready a new ideal to inspire our conduct. We cannot destroy a sanctuary unless we first build a sanctuary. There is a strange idea among some young people today that sexual happiness can be gained by breaking away from all traditional bonds. It is a visible sign of our confusion as a people and the want of happiness in our lives. The new generation should not set at naught the experience of the ages. The individual household where both parents share in the common interest of bringing up the children is the foundation on which marriage has been built up and on which it must stand. If the conditions of the home are seriously changed and the bearing and caring for children is no longer considered an essential part of marriage, a change in marriage itself will follow. I do not think you can hold the one if you let the other go, for Western Mark is right, and children should not be regarded as a result of marriage, but marriage is a result of children. And love between men and women implies duties and responsibilities that go out beyond themselves. Without this, even love of the most passionate kind loses its equality and tends to become an ephemeral or even a corrupt thing. There is much stupidity in the view of many reformers of marriage who fail to see that, however hard it is to live faithfully to the obligation and unchecked responsibilities of love, 
The old ideal of marriage does so appeal to our emotional nature that men and women are seriously unhappy in trying to destroy it. Not all who cry it is useless can do without limiting the safeguards of children and of legal marriage. We still feel the serpent's sting of jealousy in the old questions. Where do you come from? What have you been doing tonight? Who handled your body till daytime while I watched and wept? In what bed did you lie and whom did you gladden with your smile? Are still felt, even if not uttered by the lips of most emancipated husbands and wives. For our sex judgments are not intellectual, nor are they merely moral. They are not just questions of understanding and forgiving, but they are also physical, of the nerves, of the blood, of the fiercest instinct. Fortunately, it is easier to talk of love's freedom than it is to act as if it ever could be free. And in spite of what advanced people say, some feeling of beauty and sense will always exist as long as it hurts us at all to hurt others. The immortality that says, do what you desire irrespective of others, is as yet beyond most of us. Attempts to solve these problems quickly are bound to fail. Intellectual revolutionists start. I think too hopeful with regard to what may be done to produce a harmony of sexual needs. The optimism that once prevailed in regard to economics is being transferred to sexual matters. Once people suppose that if everyone followed his own instincts, a harmony would automatically establish itself in the economy of society. Now they tend to say the same about sex. Intellectual views of life and what is right and wrong always act to break people into groups, each struggling to explain everything according to one theory built on a single principle, and as a result of caring so much for one thing, people seem quite unable to grasp any facts that do not refer to their own particular reform. They are not able even to consider it as a part of a world in which there is anything else. All the evil in marriage is due to two large families and populations pressing upon the food supply. We are told by one class of enthusiasts, while others point to men's tyranny over women, Emancipation for women with an equal moral standard would have a magical effect. Men are all bad, say some. The father is a parasite, unnecessary except for his share in begetting the child. The mother is the one parent. All would be well if legal marriage were abolished and motherhood made free, is the common view among one-class reformers. Eugenical breeding and sterilization of the unfit is the remedy brought forward by others. Many suggest economic changes and the endowment of motherhood. But the matter is not so simple as reformers seem to believe, and I doubt if any outward change is really capable of producing the prompt kind of penny in the slot results that its supporters claim it can. The complexity of marriage, in particular the occurrence of sexual disharmony so present and active for misery today, is ignored by all intellectual reformers. It is because they have no emotional hold on life as a whole that they find it easy to squeeze all life into their marriage theories. For myself, I can see no sure remedy. Though in a later essay, I shall try to suggest a palliative. But were I asked to state my deepest belief, I would say only a thousand years more of development, a growth towards consciousness and a fuller understanding of the meaning of life. End of chapter 22.